Welcome to Behavior Babes Podcast, presented by me, Dr. Amanda Kelly. Aloha, and thank you for joining me today. I am excited to have Ryan Hostin join us. Hi, Ryan. Hi, how's it going? Pretty good, pretty good, depending on the day, but always a good day when I get a chance to talk to you. I'm super excited to have the opportunity to reconnect. It's been a few months since our more uh, weekly conversations or frequent conversations. It's great to circle back. Why don't we have you begin by giving an introduction so our listeners know who you are as well? Yeah, I'd love to. Uh, My name is Ryan Hostin. I'm an ASHA certified speech language pathologist. Um, I graduated from the University of Central Florida with my master's degree in communication sciences and disorders in August of 2016. And uh, my initial experiences out of graduate school were uh, actually with infant and uh, toddler and infant population in, in a medically complex setting, uh, doing a lot of feeding and swallowing work, as well as the more uh, run-of-the-mill stuff you would think about, speech and language therapy for little ones, early intervention. Um, And I've spent the last five years or so more focused on individuals with autism, autistic individuals, uh, specifically everything from speech and articulation therapy to augmentative and alternative communication, um, social skills, you name it. Wow, wonderful. I don't know if I, I did know about your history, but I kind of had forgotten that you started with such early learners, toddlers and infants. I imagine that's very different than working with older individuals. What was that experience like for you? Uh, tell us a little bit more about it. You know, that, that was not what I ever saw myself doing at all. I actually went to graduate school to work with adults um, uh, post-stroke and post-TBI traumatic brain injury. And uh, just through clinical experiences in graduate school, I really, really um, enjoyed my time in pediatrics. And, you know, I certainly care tremendously about whatever population I'm working with, but it, it, it felt really positive for me day to day. And, and I had to consider that, of course, and what I was doing. And uh, it pointed me in that direction. But um, specifically about that clientele, it's definitely different. I mean, it's the the earliest of early communication skills and language development you can you can think of. Um, And it's kind of crazy when you talk to families and professionals and really pin down those early milestones and kind of realize how early we're starting to track things and expect things from uh, individuals. So it, it was a cool experience. It was a lot of fun. The kids, of course, were adorable. Um, (laughs) And, you know, it it was really nice because with with young learners like that, it was always something new. It really felt like truly every day and definitely every week it was new skill development, new uh, awesome things we were able to be proud of them for. That's incredible. I think for myself, Ryan, the earliest learner I have worked with was an 18-month-old. And I was essentially working on communication as well, doing uh, an ABA program. It was in-home, it was play-based. They were pretty short sessions um, just for stamina and trying to keep things, like you said, positive and growing and engaging and so forth. And it was a challenge. I was super exhausted, as I think we often are when we are in our therapy modes and... um, and trying to be, you know, a, a pirate, a, a whatever theatrical thing we have to do, and um, very rewarding, very rewarding. 
very exhausting. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. I mean, definitely never a dull moment. I mean, we can, we can talk about play. We can talk about, you know, f food exploration. Um, yeah, I mean, it's never, it's never not a blast when you're working with kids in general, but particularly children that young. Um, <laughs> exciting is really just uh, brushing the surface of it. Brushing the surface of it. Yeah, we've had an opportunity to work together, which has been an incredible collaboration uh, opportunity for, I imagine for both of us, but I'll speak for myself. I really have found the intersection of your expertise and, and mine or our fields really fun to kind of blend together. And something I think of specifically, as you were mentioning to your background, was your experience with feeding. You were saying uh, feeding and swallowing. What was that experience like? Or, or I guess, actually, I want to say that's a specialty, right? And how does one specialize in the SLP world? Yeah, so that, that's an awesome question. Um, you get asked that a lot because, like I was saying, it's really not your, your run-of-the-mill um, target area. You know, a lot of people don't think of speech-language pathologists as doing that unless you're more apprised to, you know, the, the science in the field. Um, but, uh, I mean, really, it's experience-based. You know, the, it's, it's one area, and this is not to minimize everything else that speech-language pathologists do because it's, you know, medically necessary and it's, it's uh, really important. But feeding and swallowing is an area where, you know, there is room for significant harm and, and health hazard. Um, so, you know, a lot of people get into that simply from learning with mentors. Uh, you know, being before being a fully certified speech-language pathologist, you do a clinical fellowship. And a lot of times, you know, that you, you, you should have direct supervision um, most of that time. Uh, and you should really have, you know, sort of a mentorship program through that, um, as well as graduate school experiences. You know, I, I know some graduate programs have more or less of an emphasis on it. Uh, and there's definitely more information and resources readily available about feeding and swallowing in the adult population than there is pediatrics, especially young, young children. Hmm. I guess in many ways, we see that with things like strokes or, or other uh, events that could lead to difficulty uh, for somebody who was already swallowing. And I'm, I'm saying it slow because I'm, I'm not an expert in that. That's your area. I hope I said it correctly or more your area, but I'm thinking about like, I remember my great grandmother once was telling me she had to basically just difficulty swallowing her medication in particular. And she's like, was kind of um, saying to me, this is so bizarre. I'm this old and I'm being taught how to swallow like something I've done my whole life. And, but yeah, I guess I had never really thought about the body of research or where people's experiences might have been so heavily leaning towards older individuals than you were saying with the children, with children? Yeah. And, you know, I feel like with, with adults, it's um, like the, the cause and correlation is usually a lot more apparent. Like, like, you know, an example is somebody getting into an accident or, you know, having a brain injury, having a stroke, and then you start to see symptomatology, you know, related to feeding and swallowing difficulties and brain scans may show areas of the brain that are, you know, uh, warranting the impact on feeding and swallowing. Um, so, you know, I feel like there's not always all of that information up front in pediatrics. And there's also the concept of, um, you know, newborns and infants that really never eat um, 
typically or or sometimes don't even eat by mouth if they're receiving alternative nutrition that that's maybe a skill you've never seen demonstrated at all in that child or something they've never um you know been able to do but with adults it's it's almost always the opposite where they've been functioning that way their entire life and then something happens and uh that that's no longer the case which you know certainly has uh implications and considerations for the practitioner that's working with each respective population because um you know it's it, it can be it can be tough to to uh it can pull on your heartstrings either way uh absolutely but you know you often hear adults e express that to you really overtly and uh that, that's tough that can be tough yeah i imagine with um anything if if you're feeling uh bummed out uh, for lack of a technical term as the, as the patient or client there, that is going to likely impact even some of your outcomes too, right? I recently, I know you and I were talking about like some back pain and it, that I'm experiencing and it becomes so frustrating because you're like, I could do this. I have done this. Um, and I can't do this right now. So I could definitely see how you would get that piece of um, the experience. So really you were talking about like habilitative versus like rehabilitation, right? Sure. Yeah, exactly. Wow. Let's talk about AAC. I have personally been super impressed and um, on cases that we have done together, your not just like your knowledge in it, but your ability to communicate concepts uh, across disciplines is to me incredible. Um, I think I've said that to you before, uh, but what I mean by that is there are ways to approach teaching language, obviously that differ in different disciplines, but they can work well together as well. And one of the things that comes to mind for me is a, a learner that we were working with together. And I was like, oh, I, in my head, I was thinking like, I wouldn't approach it that way. I would maybe do it this order. And um, I asked you the question though, like, hey, what's the intention there? And I'll give you, um, we were talking about marbles, right? If that helps you remember who we're talking about. And you're like, actually, because I think when given the right, you know, prompts and order and whatever, we're going to get more than like, can I have marbles or I want marbles? It was like, where's the marbles? Give me more marbles. And you were able to get this just what I felt was a pretty fast acquisition of diverse language or language being used in diverse ways. And you did that through some very low tech as well. So for anyone who's not familiar, can you just define out a bit or describe AAC and what the range of what they are might look like? Yeah, absolutely. So, I, I mean, AAC is augmentative and alternative communication, and it's really referring to any aided support that's going to help an individual communicate. Um, you know, high tech involves that it implies um, technology and electronics generally, like a speech generating device. Um, and low tech may be a laminated sheet with, um, you know, a grid of words, symbols, icons on it. Um, and depending on the learner, depending on the resources, depending on um, the focus and the knowledge of the staff that work with the learner, you know, th those are all things that will impact decision making. Um, you know, simply put, some individuals just do not need high tech uh, AAC. And, uh, you know, I don't want to say it's less invasive, but it's it's less it's less cumbersome and uh, the, the resources are easier to come by 
um, certainly. So, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's not a one size fits all, no matter who you're talking about. And, you know, that's why there's specialists, you know, even within the field of speech pathology that, you know, sp spend a great deal of time evaluating individuals and, uh, in the best cases, collaborating across disciplines, you know, involving occupational therapists, physical therapists, uh, vision specialists, uh, you name it. Incredible. So tell me an example or share with us um, what that could look like. Can you paint the, the image of what that, how you would use these or how learners would use these tools to communicate more effectively? Yeah, certainly. So um, for, for AAC, a, a, a big thing is modeling. And there's a few different terms to, uh, to describe it, but aided language input is, is one of them. Um, and it's literally showing individuals um, how they would use that system in the appropriate context. And, you know, a big factor in it is it's low pressure and it's low demand. I mean, no pressure and no demand. It's not, you need to do this. You need to do what I'm doing. It's watch, watch how it's used, um, you know, soak it in. And, you know, depending on the professional you talk to, there's, there's, different opinions, but it, a lot of people refer to the research base about, you know, babies, babies that, you know, speak naturally and have a ton of exposure to words before, you know, people expect them to speak them. You know, they may hear those words thousands of times through the first year of their life before they truly use the word or express the word. Um, and some of the same principles can be applied to AAC where, you know, it's, it's only fair to allow a, a good amount of exposure before expecting an individual to perform and show that skill per se. You know, I find that piece of information to be incredibly insightful, even though it might just feel like common sense to somebody or to you or second nature. It's this beautiful idea of saying, like, if we want someone to communicate more and we make it effortful or it becomes aversive or it becomes pressure, um, something that they're feeling under pressure, that's obviously going to change the motivation and then might be a barrier to impeding that conversation or evoking more language. And so thank you for sharing that. Again, what might have been like, oh, I didn't even know I said anything uh, that was such a gem. And I think that is, I think isolating something like that allows us to be really intentional when we're approaching language and think about, oh yeah, it is about, and it definitely is about repeated opportunities of exposure as well as practice. Yeah. And, you know, I think that going back to the very general question of why, why are we using AAC with this individual or why is this individual using AAC? And it's because whatever ways people expected them to communicate, you know, prior, it was difficult. It didn't work. It wasn't working. So, you know, from, from a psychology standpoint, you can think, you know, going through any amount of your lifespan and having um, difficult experiences with something and lack of success, uh, you know, there's, there's frustration behind that. There's reluctance to try again, as you know, anybody would feel, um, you know, so I think that's a big point to always consider is, is the reason why we're considering or why the individual's using AAC in the first place. And it's, it's because communication was difficult. Exactly. Simply put, because communication was difficult. So this is this is to make it easier. Um, you know, this is to help. And if we find that things are not working or it's seeming like things are 
harder uh, and and too frustrating or too demanding, then we've lost that reason of what they're for and why we were using that device or that tech um, technology with that individual. Ryan, I want to ask you about apraxia as well. And I am asking because when we were talking about placing demands on language, um, when we had the opportunity to work together, you were sharing about, again, the um, difficulty with producing language and especially on the spot for some of our learner profiles, maybe more than others. And what we would see is, or people might be familiar with this kind of uh, interaction is a lot of people are walking by being like, hey, how's it going? And uh, maybe doing these like spontaneous greetings. And I remember our conversation around that where you really talked about um, what that puts, what that what that places on the learner when we're having those interactions. Um, so can you can you share that, speak to that? a bit more for us and our listeners. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to. And, you know, that conversation loops right in with the conversation about AAC um, and that that same that same concept of, of speech being difficult and, and maybe not coming as naturally as it does with other individuals. Um, so, yeah, I mean, apraxia is is a speech disorder, a motor speech disorder. And really, the, the terminology that ASHA, the American Speech and Hearing Association, outlines uh, is chi CAS, childhood apraxia of speech, um, which can be perceived as a misnomer because once somebody is no longer a child, is that an applicable term? Um, and there, there's some dispute about quite a bit of that, but this is all not to be confused with acquired apraxia of speech, which going back to our original topic can result from a brain insult, can result from head trauma. You know, there's different implications depending on whether it's, it's a, a childhood apraxia of speech or an, an acquired apraxia. Do you think in those interactions, like what would we say to, to therapists or technicians uh, if they're is there any tip? And I know there's so much more than a tip, but when working with individuals where language is difficult, like should we not be greeting them in the hallway or kind of what's your general recommendation about that? Absolutely. So, you know, it's my opinion that if, if we suspect somebody has childhood apraxia of speech, that a speech language pathologist needs to be involved. You know, that's, that's the preferred practitioner uh, to treat and diagnose childhood apraxia of speech. And, um, you know, really, again, the issue is on is on speech, and it, it does not mean that the child or the individual does not have um, functional or age appropriate language skills, which is, again, looping back to the AAC conversation, you know, we, we give a lot of individuals access to AAC when they have, you know, childhood apraxia of speech. And, you know, you quickly see that there's really not a language problem at all, or you run, you know, a receptive vocabulary or receptive language assessments. And, you know, you find out this is a, a, a spoken language difficulty. This is a, this is a speech difficulty. Um, so yeah, I mean, we, we use AAC really as a tool for that, which can be used in social interactions too. And the example you gave about interacting in a hallway or at school or with peers, again, whether it's low tech or, or high tech AAC, um, and then, you know, working with that, that SLP, with that speech professional to understand the specifics of that child's um, speech difficulties, strategies that support the child, um, you know, signs that that may seem like the child is really trying their best and it's just not something that's achievable at that moment. 
And, you know, I think you really need to be formed, informed and understand because I think the examples you're giving, it's good intentioned professionals that want the child to interact and want the child to be exposed to social skills and want to include the child, but simply don't understand that um, asking again to say something or prompting an imitation is is not the solution and and may actually be um, harmful in some instances. Wow. You know, I, one, of course, am not surprised by this wonderful answer and the thoughts that it gets me thinking about in particular, um, let's talk about collaboration. Let's talk about collaboration uh, across and within disciplines. You mentioned that in the last five years or so, you've specifically been working or primarily working with the autistic population, individuals with autism. And so is that something that most speech and language pathologists are trained in? Were you trained in how to work with individuals with autism? I know a lot of things are through experience, but I'd love to hear how you um, obtained that experience um, because in, in my experiences, it's something that you really, you really hone in with this population. And not only do I mean our learners, but that's a whole host of other collaborators to collaborate with. And so how, what's that experience been like for you? Yeah, so, you know, I, I consider it a, a specialty area. And that's to say, um, you know, granted, there's there depending on where you live and what your resources are, there's not always every option in the world for speech therapy care. But, you know, I believe that professionals that are experienced with working with that population specifically should be working with that population. Um, so my, my first experiences hands-on with autistic individuals was uh, at the UCF Center for Autism, uh, UCF CARD, uh, the Center for Autism and Related Disabilities. And I was mentored by some amazing professionals there, um, you know, with backgrounds in education, backgrounds in speech pathology, backgrounds in psychology and behavior, or, or a combination of all of it. Um, so, so that was my first exposure. And I, I really got to learn from some amazing folks. And, and then, you know, as we spoke, I had some gap in, in experience and direct work with autistic individuals and kind of found my way back into that, um, you know, years later. And, and it was, it was good timing because I had that prior experience and there was, there was a good need for speech therapy services for the population in the area I was, but, but yeah, you know, I, I think that that needs to be really considered. And I think autistic individuals need to uh, not be just tossed onto a caseload with, you know, a mix of clients with other um presentations and other needs. And, and, you know, I think that that really needs to be carefully considered because they're, you know, can be very unique learners. Absolutely. And, and so let's talk about behavior technicians and behavior analysts um, from your perspective, the, the individuals themselves or the field itself, because where we, when we were working together, we were heavily working together. And, um, and so I think, you know, especially the majority of the services that we were providing with that organization were specific to behavior, but you are leading the speech department and have several speech pathologists that you're interacting with and so forth. And sometimes I've seen 
speech and language pathologists, behavior analysts, and so forth work together like nobody's business. And we see these incredible outcomes. And just with any other relationship, of course, there's always bumps in the road. But there are also times where those uh, philosophies even will butt heads. And there's got to be a way to work. And there have been really successful experiences of blending this together. But what has been either your experience, your approach, your technique, your suggestion, solution for collaboration? Where has it been the easiest? And maybe where has it been the hardest? Yeah, that's that's an awesome question. So, you know, I, I think that the, the first conversation in collaboration needs to be the purpose of the collaboration and, and the answer is always for the benefit of the, the individual, the be benefit of the, the person you're treating. And, you know, I think if you start there, it really sets up a nice framework for finding the right solutions and, and being, um, you know, having a team-based solution-oriented uh, program rather than butting heads, like you said. My experiences personally have been great with collaboration across a variety of professionals, whether we're talking about physical therapists, occupational therapists, RBTs, behavior analysts. Um, you know, I think a big part of that is being open-minded, being respectful, uh, understanding that the philosophy and the science, um, you know, that you're thinking from might be slightly different. Your training and education might be slightly different, but but the goals are, are generally uh, pretty similar or, or at least can agree with one another. Um, you know, I think I think uh, respectful, constructive feedback is always <laughs> is always appropriate. I think you know highlighting the positives that you're seeing with other practitioners is important because that that means something. But yeah, I mean, depending on who you're speaking to, uh, pe people have had different experiences. You know, there there are there are people that take different approaches and there are people that are against certain approaches, but I think that there's a happy medium to be found. Um, I think everything is based in principles of psychology and, you know, to discount that as an SLP and say, you know, principles of psychology or principles of applied behavior analysis aren't uh, relevant here is, is, uh, that's not, not my suggestion. That's, that's not, you know, that's not how I approach collaboration, but you know, that being said that the actual strategies and techniques that are being carried out in practice are, are not always exactly what you would do when there's another practitioner working on a similar skill. Mm -hmm. I think often about, you know, the structure of language versus the function of language and um, how I'm talking about that is, you know, we think about uh, getting individuals to request things. And often um, a lot of technicians are walking around or analysts saying like, we need to get them manding. And parents are like, what's a mand? What do you mean manding? <laughs> oh, speaking, talking, asking, requesting under, you know, motivation. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, that's not unusual. That speech and language would also be working on that high motivation, understanding reinforcement, would those principles, of course, I think would make interaction with any human being a bit easier if we understand them and taking them into account. I think, again, something else you said that was incredibly valuable, and again, maybe it's simple, but it's worth emphasizing and highlighting is that having an open mind, starting the conversation with who we're here for, but being open, being open to being wrong, being open to being learning something new, um, being open to finding a more efficient way to do something, 
And that's, I think for me, what I was experiencing when you were showing me the way you were approaching language with that learner. And I was thinking, I, I wouldn't necessarily be going down the road of descriptors or shifting the way they're asking a question, but I didn't say, and therefore let's not do it, or we're not going to do it, or it better be my way. It really did have me lean in and go, Hey, that's really curious to me. Why are you making that decision? And you're like, okay, well, I'm hypothesizing this. And then we were like, let's go do it together. And I had the ability to, you know, um, remote into that session, which we've seen a lot of negatives with things being remote and some positives. For me, a positive is being able to observe a session without having to influence the session so much or the interaction. And as I was watching it, and of course, I think I was muted, so you couldn't hear me, but I was like, like gasping with like, whoa, wow. And all I had to really kind of say and reflect to myself after is, I would have not approached it that way because I didn't know that I could approach something that way. And that's what I needed your, I mean, your insight on, or, you know, your, your background and perspective. And then that like, Hey, and then we do it. And everything that we do, I think in both of our um, experiences has been looking at the, you know, does it work? Is it working? Is the child happier? Are they communicating more? Is the individual struggling? Are they succeeding? And if they aren't um, succeeding, we're going to adapt it and adjust it. And earlier when I was like, hey, is there any tips or things you would say? Um, your answer was so beautiful. You're like, it would be individualized. We would have the right people on the team and they would make those individualized decisions. Um, of course, of course, of course. But for some reason, I thought there was a, maybe some extra secret magic special sauce because you seem to really understand um, both perspectives when they feel like they're coming from different places. And I think that that's a talent of yours. Not I don't mean just collaboration, but I mean, truly, really looking at the perspective of where you're standing from the other angle um, where somebody else might be standing. So just applaud that and want to emphasize for everybody listening. It is about, you know, bringing your expertise, about being a part of that team, about learning from other people's expertise. And let me just be really clear, 20 some odd years in the field, and I was sitting there going, wow, that works. And and not not at all surprised that you are a capable uh, clinician, but more of like, look what opportunity this child would have had if I hadn't had, or if there wasn't your perspective and involvement. And that was one of those like really comforting moments of like, this feels really good and would only be half maybe if I, you know, or less than that, if um, both of us weren't contributing or everybody wasn't contributing. Well, thanks so much for saying that. Um, you know, I, I feel like the the biggest place where that comes from is trying to understand the individual and, and what's meaningful to them. And when I see a child that wants to interact with others, wants to play chase with others, wants to refuse and reject things and, and you know, say, get essentially, you know, communicate, get this away from me to, to simply say, let's just teach the child to request things doesn't cut it. Um, you know, that's that's not rich enough of language exposure um, to meet that child's needs and to uh, elevate that child to do the best they can. And, and like you said before, to, to be their happiest. Um, and again, you know, that's not something we're going to take qualitative data on necessarily. But, you know, that's one of the biggest indicators that I look at is is 
how, 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 you know, is the child enjoying this? Is the child enjoying therapy sessions? Is the child enjoying the skills that they can utilize? Is, is he, is he or she happy? I mean, you know, I, I feel like you can't, you, you, you have to acknowledge that, you know, if you're, if you're measuring anything. Yeah. And you know what I have to tell you when I'm learning a new skill, I might not always be super happy. It's very difficult. It's hard. But when somebody's showing that they're persisting and that they're trying and that they're giving it their all, there's something about that that is hopefully leading to that path of like, this is going to get easier. This is going to get easier. You believe me as you know, your therapist, we've done this. It's going to get easier. It's going to get, oh, there it goes. There it is. And that persistence, um, which of course helps some, any of us learn a skill when we just really focus, stay persistent, hang in there when it's tough, because the goal of course is like, this is going to make your life easier. Ryan, I've thoroughly enjoyed uh, every conversation we've ever had, but particularly the opportunity to share this conversation with our listeners. One question I want to ask you before we end is when people are um, using, when an individual or learner has an AAC device and they say something like, go away or leave me alone or I don't want to talk to you or whatever it is. And sometimes they're repeating it. Go away, go away, go away, go away, go away, go away, go away. I imagine that you may have at least once in your career experience where someone then takes the device or takes the low tech, uh, the paper away. What is your response when people do that? What's your advice for that? And what should people be thinking about? I think that regardless of the message that's being communicated and how frequently it's being communicated, that's that individual's right to communicate it. Um, you know, I think removing icons, covering up symbols, taking away a speech de generating devices is never right. Um, you know, if you have somebody that's communicating a request or, or a demand and they want something and you then take away their device because they, can, they, they you don't have that for them to access. Now you've got an individual that's frustrated because they can't communicate and frustrated because they can't get the item, object, food that they want. So I, I don't ever see that as a solution. Um, it, it happens, um, you know. <laughs> Sometimes, sometimes that just happens. But, you know, I, I really encourage um, therapists to find another way to drive motivation and redirect that rather than say, hey, I'm going to thwart this and, and remove this, say, you know, hey, may, maybe something else would be more exciting or more interesting for this individual. And let's, let's shift the focus there. Yeah, reflect on our behavior and, and what we're doing to see how we can shift this environment for that individual. That is incredible and feels very connected with, uh, I think, how I like to approach the world. But hey, we forget. We forget sometimes. And we're just thinking like, this is frustrating. I'm frustrated. Um, I don't like being told I smell bad or that I need to go away. And I want them to stop. I sometimes will tell people, you know, would you walk over to anybody else and put your hand over their mouth? And that visual for a lot of people is like, absolutely, I would not. I definitely would not. And so, as you mentioned earlier, the things that we've, we're talking about or some of the examples we use, they're from very well-intended, very caring individuals. That's why I just wanted to make sure before we left today, I got your, your opinion on that. And we got to hear how <laughs> you would phrase that. That was very helpful. Um, very helpful indeed. 
Ryan, thank you so much for joining today for the podcast. I am so thrilled that we got to share this conversation with others. We'll we'll have you back. We'll do some more talking, kind of uh, get back to that. Um, uh, maybe not quite the weekly schedule we had, but one a bit more frequent than where we've ended up. Is there anything that you'd like to say, add to the listeners? Uh, we have a lot of parents um, and a lot of students, graduate students and things like that who, who lean in and go like, what's going on? And um, what would you say? Um, you know, thank you for giving me the opportunity to be here and speak about, you know, speech therapy, speech language pathology. Um, you know, I so much value your, uh, your emphasis on the importance of a collaborative approach. And, and that would be my advice for everyone, whether you're an individual, a parent, a, a therapist is collaborate and connect with others. I mean, you know, that that's why there's so many specialties and so many different areas that you know, work with, with folks, um, you know, with unique needs and, and utilize those resources. You know, you don't, you don't have to do it alone. Nobody's expecting that. And the outcomes are only going to be better, um, you know, when you explore all of those options. So, so yeah, I mean, definitely looking into a collaborative approach and, and um, connecting with, with all relevant professionals when the opportunity is there. Couldn't have said it better myself, you know? I mean, we could probably get things done in the world on our own, but it's a heck of a lot easier when we've got other people on our team working with us, especially a team of professionals, individuals committed to helping those that we serve. As you mentioned earlier on when we first started talking about collaboration, reminding ourselves, orienting ourselves to the shared purpose really does help align or realign the conversations when there's any perhaps conflict or uh, coming at things from a different approach. Ryan, thank you again for the conversation and for joining us today. And for anyone who's interested in learning more about this topic or related topics and behavior analysis, you can do so by going to www.behaviorbabe.com.